Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, James Long. How are you today? Oh, very good, Rabbi. Shalom to you and shalom to all of our listeners. So good to see you again. And you, sir, and all of our wonderful listeners as well here in this in this um, middle, exactly, of the month of Kislev. Month of darkness, month of short days and long nights, but yet soon we will be on the cusp of the emergence of the hidden light of creation as we kindle our Hanukkah lights. Yeah. And, and there's so much going on here, Jim, with the, with the, with the COVID, with the, the talk now here in Israel of a third wave and, and, and possibly yet another lockdown just in time for Hanukkah so that we can't get together with our families to light the Hanukkah lights. And, and so it goes. And as we kind of, if I may say, if I may borrow a, uh, an, a concept from this week's Torah portion of Ayishlach, we all seem to be wrestling with some sort of uh, force that's trying to trying to put us down, as it were, in the darkness, in you know, the darkness. in the direction. All night long. It, it, isn't it interesting that uh, you've set the stage for this period that we're in? And I even heard a, a, a non-religious person uh, persons talking about this darkness of COVID that we're going to go into with the onset of winter time. So it's very consistent again with the idea that when you read the the, the parsha every week, it is it's like reading the headlines. It's so amazing because first of all, this Torah portion, you know, is always seen maybe more than any other as as being just like this um, uh, illustration of this world. Uh, geopolitical dynamic uh, that is that is constantly reverberating throughout history, you, you know, namely these these forces that are aligned, Yaakov and Esav. And um, I'll never forget back, back in, um, what year was it? I think it was around, it was some 77, 78, the year that Anwar Sadat came to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. What was the, the, week, the week that he came to Jerusalem was actually Parshat Vayishlach. Wow. And there were a totally secular columnist in one of Israel's very secular newspapers wrote about the fact that here it is, it's the Torah portion of Vayishlach, and we have this meeting here. Um, so that so so this this Torah portion, um, of course, beginning in um, Genesis thirty-two and verse four, it's it's got so much going on. It's sprawling because it's it's um it's, it includes so many of the huge and important events of our patriarch Yaakov's life. It's not only the struggle with that figure that uh, ultimately we identify um, as an angel, but also this meeting with Esav and the whole the whole. Um, strategy that he employed uh he was so nervous about that meeting he was so anxiety about that reading about that meeting and so he you know he divided the camp and he actually had a three-pronged strategy of of trying to you know prepare a present for him to kind of like appease him mm-hmm. of of prayer and also of the possibility of physical confrontation of going to war and i think it's ha- a, it's a way for anybody to read how you should um, plan for any kind of a, a disaster that you right. think may be be coming, and you're seeing it coming from afar, and and literally, as we like to say, getting your ducks in a row, right? Uh, and contingency plan. Yeah, exactly. And and it's even you you see uh, among among the the Jewish people through history, you see them who have survived by adopting the strategy that Yaakov. Uh, uh, adapts or adopts and adapts to as he's about to confront his brother who who uh you know is seemingly going to be very angry with him uh because of the, because of the so-called stolen blessing which i hope that we we put that phrase to rest in last week's uh, actually actually uh, actually james it is totally put to rest by divine authority in this week's torah portion yeah. And that's the secret of of this uh, strange reply that the that the angel gives to Yaakov when he asks for his blessing, and he tells him, "Your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Israel, for mm-hmm. you have um, 
you have um, what is the word you, with... you have you have striven with the divine and with man and you have overcome so in in this week's video Torah portion and again Jim I don't want to give too much away I want to I want you to be on the edge of your chair but in, in this week's Torah portion um, I, I um, explore the whole concept of what this struggle was all about first of all how do we even know that it was an angel and and the strange dialogue between Yaakov and this person, this figure, this adversary, this attacker who pounces upon him when he's vulnerable and alone in the middle of the night, and this strange dialogue that they have, you know, like we're after fighting with him the whole night, he asks to him, to, he asks Yaakov to let him go, and it's all just very, very strange. So I, ha I have um, uh, an approach there that I'd like yeah. you to see. Don't, but, you, but don't you see that, that this is a, we talked about this last week when, uh, Jacob goes into the tent and he's dressed like he saw him. He smells like he saw him even. And, he feels and like his father, he's a duplicate. He's, he's, he's in this disguise. And, and we explained, I hope to everyone's satisfaction that the reason that, that his father blesses him, even though he is this, uh, he's, he has the voice of Yaakov, but the hands of Esau and we showed how, in in one respect, that blessing confers upon the Jewish people, all of the descendants of Yaakov, that you will survive history by uh, possessing the strength of Esav, but but maintaining the voice and the direction of of Torah, which is the the voice of Jacob. And, right. here, and, the, and the voice really represents prayer. It really represents prayer. the power. Yeah. The well, power. Of, what the, I'm the, saying the, is, the, is that, the spiritual power yeah. of Israel is what it really represents. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It is the material and the the supernal, and how how the, how a man and woman of Israel perfectly balance those two. This is because there is this struggle that we have to keep reminding people that hey, as much as we talk about the the spiritual aspects of of Torah. It's what makes us survive the world, and it shows us how to grow in the world, but we still have to strive in the material, and this shows you that this wrestling match, which, uh, you know, uh, we're, uh, plot spoiler here, Yaakov wins the wrestling match through through two things, physical strength and determination, and because because the because his his teaching of Torah is is what uh, you can all. My my stepdad told me you can always win a fight. Generally, you can win a fight if you know you're in the right. It. it I don't it gives think you... there was any physical strength involved. I think it was a spiritual struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 again, if this adversary is identified as the guardian or ministering angel of Asaph, it has to be understood what, what was really going on here. Now, 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 yes, he won the battle. And again, mm -hmm. I, I have a completely different approach that I want you to see in this week's video, because it's something that is much more universal. Also, what it really means for all of us, because we are all struggling with angels. There's no question about that. Sure. But, but the thing is, Jim, don't forget that he was wounded. He was wounded right. in the battle. Right. And, uh, and that, it's and a that very is, interesting concept. Is, that it's grievous. It, 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 it's grievous because, uh, it's it's almost like you know like after fighting him the whole night he he like he, he did some sort of um, what would you call that in uh, in um, uh, uh, those wrestling matches um, some illegal move you know a band yeah. a band move like he saw he couldn't give him like a good knockout so he so he did something that he would normally be banned from a wrestling competition for right and but but the thing is that that um, represents. Oh, to me, only one thing, uh, that the, the concept of the strike in the thigh or the hip area, the hip socket, mm -hmm. represents in Chazal, in our sages, it represents the idea of um, the future generation's birth, right? identified with, with the thigh, right? Like, mm -hmm. the, like, like the expression, those that come, come forth from your loins, right? And so the symbolism of that, uh, please listen, you have to understand something. Ya Asaph wants to kill Yaakov. There's no question about it. Even though now it seems like they were like uh, palsy-walsy and everything like this, and, uh, and uh, Asaph was appeased and everything like that. Uh, maybe Asaph was looking into the future and saying, you know what, I, I, instead of killing my brother now, I'll, be, I'll have a thousand times more satisfaction knowing that my descendants are going to be killing his descendants for all time. Yeah. Until, until basically the prophecy of, of Avadia. Ovadia, which is all about the downfall of Asaph, 
the whole mm-hmm. prophecy of Avadya is all about the time that it's going to be until that time, that messianic era when Asaf is defeated. But so Asaf is like, you know what? Fine, because I'm going to be dealing you, with you on so many levels throughout history, and uh, and and the and the, the, the where he struck was with the children in the future, future mm-hmm. generations. Well, the now, one of the explanations. And, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, no, I just wanted to say, and, and and but but this 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 you know this theme, this recurring theme, you know, that's just like you know catapulting through history, the the the, the constant you know, meeting and struggle between, between them. Um, I'm, I was just very pleased to read about the um, assassination of the, of the, um, sci- the, the, I'll call him the rogue scientist who was basically yeah, the, the, the father of the Iranian nuclear, nuclear um, program. Uh, program. And um, that kind of thing, I must say, it just makes me so proud of, of Israel that they're able to come up with these things, it was apparently, according to Iranian, Iranian. Uh, first of all, let, let me just issue this um, proviso because I am not a member of the Israeli intelligence and I know nothing. And Israel, of course, has a policy of um, of deniability. You know, never never really admits to these things, uh, kind of with a wink. But um, Iranian um, press uh, said that you know Israeli weapons were recovered at at the place, but they said basically the whole thing was. Was controlled by satellites. Like there was a, a a truck bomb, and then there were there were machine guns that were rigged in a car that there were no there was nobody there. They were opening fire. It was all directed by a satellite. Wow! And um, <laughs> and uh, and so they're very very upset, and they're saying there's going to be a terrible price to pay and and all that kind of thing. I, I want you to understand something when you read about something like that. And and uh, who the true heroes of Israel are? The true heroes of Israel are these these people that live these lives, these people that are associated with, whether it's Mossad or whatever, or whatever the group is that are so deep undercover, they live in these countries, they have spouses, you know, of, of those people. They, they are totally, totally, totally deep. They're, and they're called they're, sleepers still. Yes. Yes. Like, like Ellie Cohen, yeah. like Ellie Cohen, the mm-hmm. famous, this, the, the famous Ellie Cohen, you know, that there are spy in, in Syria in the sixties. You know uh, the amount of of self sacrifice and dedication right. that these people have to have is it's unspeakable. I have known people like this in my life. I have met I have met people that have lived that way in these in these countries. I mean, to put together something like this, you have to have people on the ground. You have to have people yeah. on the ground, and it's just it's such an amazing. I, mean, I think it's a tremendous sanctification of Hashem's name. Whether these people consider themselves religious, whether they consider themselves observant, it, it matters not. The fact that they have such a tremendous spark of Am Yisrael in them that they are willing to die for their people yeah. and to do anything that it takes to protect their people. Anyway, so here I'm thinking about this whole this whole um, assassination and and the backdrop of the fact that you know Esav wants to destroy Yaakov and that's the end of it. And then you hear these blanket condemnations like the EU. The EU came out and said, you know, this is a horrendous thing. And it's like a it's like a war crime, you know, that it has to be investigated. Horrendous, horrendous crimes. That, you know, like mm-hmm. obviously looking at Israel, like Israel must have done this, right? But the the same people like they're okay with the fact that that Iran, like like for ten years, like every Monday and Thursday, all they talk about is destroying Israel, destroying Israel, destroying Israel. So it's well known that they've admitted, and everybody knows what's going on with the centrifuges and how it's totally bogus and how it has nothing to do with anything other than developing nuclear weapons and how and how they are completely lying. And then and then Biden, he wants to he wants to get back into the negotiations with them, which is like which is like defies any reasonable logic in the world why anyone would do that like what is what is he missing what did he lose exactly in Iran that he wants right. to that he wants to stand up for them um so if Israel really did that if Israel really took that guy out which which people are saying is like an almost irreparable loss it's not the end of their nuclear program but it's a really it's a really big blow if Israel did that like now like in these waning end days of the Trump administration before Biden gets elected, if that was really the scenario, I have to tell you that is just breathtaking to me that we would actually have what it takes to go and do something like that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's that that I, I that's like our present to, to the president elect. God bless. Well, him. this is I I look at this in in several respects. In one that that uh, our listeners may, may not realize, this is a Torah principle at work, and the Torah teaches that if you learn that someone your is coming to kill you, is coming to kill you, you get up early in the morning and you dispatch that person before they kill you and your family. Exactly. This is you know I would say to people. Okay, you can do a preemptive strike in one of two ways. You can wait till it's too late and you have to bring out the big guns or you can nip it in the bud because you know that this man was if he had, was had been allowed to live, he would have been responsible for probably the entire destruction of the state of Israel. So which, I, which is a, a vowed plan, but they've been they haven't been they haven't been you know discreet about that. They've been made it no. so clear the whole world sees that. But then yeah. now that we did this, the whole world is saying, "Ooh, naughty, naughty! How could you do such a thing?" Yeah. But see, this is this I think again proves the the idea of the blessing given to to Jacob in in that to survive in the real world, you will you will first God requires you as as the people of Israel to maintain and to represent the Torah in the world, but it will also require of you, because it's a a real physical realm, to put on the strength and even the cunning of Esav. And I I think that's a very valid uh, blessing that that came there in that tent, and we're going to see it again, you know, played out in this week's Torah Parsha. And the, uh, you know, and I think it also points back to the, hypocrisy of the Western world today in that they would wag their finger in the faces of, of anybody who supports Israel and say, see, this is the kind of things that they do. Well, no other nation in the world would, would allow it's basically Asaph is constantly saying to Yaakov, "How dare you yeah. try to survive? How dare right. you? You, you're, how dare you still be here after yeah. everything that I put you through? After all the inquisitions and Auschwitzes and crematoria and and uh, auto de fe and everything and by else the that way, I've done to you, you're still here? Yeah. You're so yeah. annoying! You're so this annoying!" Is- the this EU is the says. whole thing that you just said about about the 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 ligament the the in in Jacob's thigh the sciatic nerve the, the sciatic nerve that that this uh, so called uh, man touched and, and and kind of a cheat and and this there's another interesting level to that idea of this wrestling match and of of this uh, person or this being uh, using that kind of tactic and because he knew. He for some for some reason he knew Jacob's weakness, and he knew it would be that particular nerve. And what's interesting about that is there's I believe there's something in the world that is so beautiful. In other words, he knew Jacob's weakness. That the one thing that he really cares about that that marks this Jewish father is the future generations, his children. Exactly. That's, that's your weak. That's where I'll get you. That's where I'll get you. And that will be to you. That will be worse than your own death is to be, is to be, have that anxiety over the future of your children. And what's funny is the, uh, there, there, I remember, I don't remember where I read this. It was a wonderful commentary that mentioned that the, one of the weaknesses, it was also that weakness that you point out was, uh, something that runs through the people of Israel, and and it is, you know, the saying that uh, a person, some in uh, various individuals, you can say of them, uh, his greatest strength is also his greatest weakness, and so there is a commentary that points out that 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 weakness is the kindness of the Jewish people, and that in all through history. Uh, even with Abraham Avinu, with Abraham, that sometimes they were they were kind to their enemies when they should not have been, and that that kindness eventually led to disaster, and that this would always be something that the people of Israel would have to would have to watch over. By on the opposite side of the coin, we have an episode where uh, two sons uh, in this Torah parsha. Uh, take matters into their own hands, and they they look out. They believe they're looking out for the family, and I believe they were. And uh, there is a very controversial aspect. I don't know if you want to talk about that particular thing. Or you want to Let, let's wait on that. To, to, let's uh, wait on just that. A, just a little chronological. If you don't mind, Jim, I just want. I want to. I just sure. want to say something uh, here in the in the front end of the parsha before we get to that. That's that's. 
Um, we're gonna get, we're gonna get to that as well. I, w- I want to talk for just a moment about Yaakov. Um, the fact is, he is um, well. Well, you know that the Torah ascribes a special status to the, these three patriarchs: Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in a way, you can describe them as larger than life because each one of them is, of course, synonymous with one of God's divine attributes, right? Based on, mm-hmm. on the template of how they they serve God in, in their life. We've spoken about this many times, and of course, in recent Zoom classes on the lives of the forefathers on Sundays, I've gone into this in great detail about Abraham being the personification of kindness and Isaac the, the embodiment of of um, what we call gvura, which is like fear and awe of God. And Yaakov is called Tiferet, which actually is truth. As the prophet Micha says in chapter 7 and verse 20, grant truth to Yaakov. So the idea basically that the, the sages are expressing is that these men, they rose to their full potential and, and their full human potential. They were, they were very human, but they so worked towards perfecting themselves that their very lives became like a vessel to convey godliness in the world, which of course is the, is the purpose of life. Anyway, Yaakov is called basically the the choicest of the forefathers, uh, and um, he is actually the one that we can identify with the most. He's, he has all these uh, adventures. The Torah provides so much detail about his life. He his, but let's say that his humanity seems to be more accessible than than Abraham and, and Yitzchak, and indeed, you know, um, we have that teaching that I've I've mentioned many times about. Um, the mountain, the field, and the house, right? That that each one mm-hmm. of these men had their relationship with Hashem was was amplified and was and was refracted through their relationship with the Temple Mount and how Abraham called it a mountain, right? And the mountain the Lord will be seen. And a mountain is like, you know, it's distant, it's foreboding, it's jagged, it's not so user friendly. Yitzchak called it a field, like behold this the the the, the smell of the, of the, um my sin is like the, the field that Hashem has blessed and, and Yitzhak went out into the fields to meditate. So his conception was a field which is already cultivated and something that's has use for human society. But then Yaakov called it a house, right? Last week's Torah portion, he wakes mm-hmm. up and he says, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gateway to heaven. And a house, of course, is a home. And uh, it's something that we can relate to the most. And and Isaiah says that in the future, the whole world, all the nations will be able to relate to the Holy Temple through their identification with Yaakov. Because the verse in Isaiah states in chapter 2, uh, many people will come and say, let's go up to the mountain of Hashem to the house of the God of Jacob. So the f- future temple is called the house of the God of Jacob because he is the one who brings the temple, as it were, and thus Hashem's presence to a place where all people can appreciate it, which is very fitting since he is the one that is working opposite Esau. Now, Yaakov is the one who is credited really with establishing the, the nation of Israel, right? Which he did with, with tremendous... Um, self-sacrifice and, you know, in the house of Lavan and, and all the labor and all the subterfuge that Lavan was, was putting him through and, and all the things that he did. And then last week in the, in the Torah portion of Ayetse, we learned about, you know, his, the whole deal with, uh, with the sheep, right? Now, whatever it is, I presented a number of different approaches in the, in the Torah video, whether it was right. his incredible acumen, you know, that Hashem actually uh, gave him some sort of uh, incredible wisdom and he, or on his own, even he figured out the laws of heredity or, or whether it was all Hashem's doing or, or, or whether he was deeply meditating on these patterns in the sticks. The point is, he had his grandfather's book of formation, right? He had Avraham Avinu's right. Sefer he, he very well knew the secrets of creation. Mm-hmm. And the Zohar puts, the Zohar says, you know what? He decreed on the sheep and all that was missing was to inject them with souls because Yaakov did this whole, this whole deal, right? So that's what Yaakov did. That's who he was. And, and in fact, in the beginning of our Torah portion, it's called Vayishlach because Yaakov sent messengers on ahead to Esau, but that's not, the verse actually says, Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. Yaakov oh. sent, and the word is actually, can be, can be messengers, but it's actually usually translated as angels, which is funny because in, in the wrestling match later in the parsha, where we're all convinced that it was an angel, there the Torah calls this person an ish, which just means a man. man. But here it says that Yaakov sent out Malachim. So, of course, the sages are always divided about in their opinions. So, some some say yes, they were just DHL or FedEx, but some say no. Yaakov sent actual angels on ahead. That's all I'm trying to say is 
that's who this man was. He was so great. It's like, it's like, oh, oh, I have a looming confrontation with my angry, hate-driven, psychotic brother who's converging on me and my family with an army of 400 men, armed men. No problem. I'll send some angels on ahead. Mm -hmm. That's who Yaakov was. But, and this is where where I'm taking you. We have this verse, which I think is so incredibly moving, that is uh, uh, underappreciated here in in our parsha, where where Yaakov is um, is getting ready to meet with Esav, right? And, and because again, there's a three part strategy. It's it's trying to appease him with the present. It's praying to Hashem. It's preparing for the possibility of war. And in his prayer, he's praying for deliverance. Um, he prays to Hashem and um, you know to save him from the hand of Esav. And he says he begins to pray. It's in chapter thirty two and verse ten. He says, God of my father Avraham and God of my father Yitzchak, Hashem who said to me, return to your land and to your relatives and I will do good for you. He says, I have become diminished by all the kindnesses and by all the truth that you have done your servant. For with my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. So he uses this word, katonti. I have literally. It means I'm. I have become small. Yeah. I have become diminished. Jim, you're into movies. Remember, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I never saw it, but the, I, <laughs> Jim, I know those are not the kind of movies you appreciate. You appreciate classic, classic vintage. No, movies. it's a good family flick. It's, okay, it's I never saw it, but I, I found the title very, very intriguing. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So Yaakov says, I'm shrunk. I have become, he says, honey, I've become, I've been shrunk. Why? What did he mean by that? This is a very, very deep lesson in Chazal. Chazal, our sages talk about this uh, tremendous amount in in very important books. What did he mean when he said, I became small? Basically, uh, first first of all, there's two ways of understanding the, the backstory. One one is that when he said in in this prayer, when he said, "For with for with my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps." One way of understanding that is that when he when he crossed the river originally, uh, fleeing from from Esav on his way to Lebanon, all he had was a staff. That's all he had to his name. And now, like, wow, he has so much family and so much possessions and so much flocks that he can uh, divide it into two huge camps. The other interpretation of uh, with my staff I crossed the Jordan is that he split the Jordan with his staff, with literally with my staff I crossed the Jordan. But the po- the point is this: the understanding of our sages from these words that Yaakov said to Hashem, "I have become diminished," is that he was worried that even though Hashem had made him this tremendous promise that he would always be with him and that he would always be taking care of him. There's an idea that when a miracle is performed for a person, th- it's taken off their balance. It's taken off their credit. In other words, that's not free. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he, cr- he crossed the Jordan with his staff, and it was a miracle. And his whole life was a miracle, his survival, right? Whether or not it was literal with the staff. But the point is, when he was feeling that, Again, I, I was I, the the reason I described him beforehand is because I, again I want you to remind you who Yaakov was. He's a man who had angels under his command, right? Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. The first words of our Torah portion. He sent angels. He had angels under his command. He, uh, I, I mean, the sages actually say that he was the rectification of of Adam. That he's the continuation of Abraham's legacy. That his face is the same as Adam's face, right? That the, the symbolism is that he is trying to take responsibility for humanity, right? So, th- so this man who saw Hashem at the top of the ladder, who had the ability to send out a commando unit of angels, who who fought with an angel and won, as we see in this week's Torah portion, and who had the ability to split the Jordan, he felt inadequate on account of Hashem's ki- kindness. In other words, he felt undeserving. Is what I'm trying to say. He felt that he didn't deserve anything. He he felt he didn't feel worthy. He knew his worth, but he still he was able to to be so real about himself that he felt his smallness and he felt himself to be inadequate as compared to Hashem's great kindness. And 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 basically this this is an idea that he feared that because Hashem helped him so much, that this somehow diminished his his merit, as if his credit were maxed out. And that's why he was afraid to meet with Asa, because I I have been diminished means basically I 
you know, you, I'm inadequate. Like I, 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 what could I say? You've done, you've done so much for me, Hashem. Like you've been, you've been so good to me. So I, I just think that it's an amazing thing because none of us really um, think about our lives in these terms. We take everything for granted. We're all basically self-centered and we think that we get everything that's coming to us. We should get everything that's coming to us. And the fact is that the, you know, the bottom line is that Hashem doesn't owe us anything. Uh, and everything is, our lives are only on account of his kindness. Well, that's that's um, why this Torah Parsha is, you know, I often refer to it as the most universal of all the Parashot. It is it is the message in in uh, this in Vaishlak is so pivotal to world history and to our individual lives that, you know, you often hear, you know, the the uh, as an Ahide, you know, years ago I encountered these arguments: is how much Torah can we teach non-Jews? And I've always maintained, that, and people often say, some of the rabbinical scholars say, well, you can only teach uh, non-Jews, uh, even Noahides, you can only teach them the parts of the Torah that apply to them. How can you I, not I want, read you know, I, I want, when any I of that? that. I, get so, I get so upset when I hear that, because no, the whole Torah I do too. applies. The, the whole Torah. Applies. The question is how is, it, is it, how is it to be applied to Noahide life? But, but it's, it's so... Um, clear that a Noahide has to be uh, who feels uh, you know compelled, who feels attracted. So there are different levels of Noahides. Also, there are some Noahides that are not you know that interested in in uh, in delving deeper. But the Torah is totally accessible to everyone. That's the whole well, idea. Yeah. Torah for everyone. The point. The point being is that you first of all you cannot parse out the Torah like that. The t- the Torah is a whole entity. It is a complete book. And you can't take sections out and say, okay, you can study this. Because to understand all of the Torah, you have to, you, if you read one individual part of the Torah to really understand it, you have to read the rest of the Torah. And, and this, which is not only is this so pivotal to, to teaching the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, who they are and why they are chosen to be this priesthood. It teaches us that lesson, but it also teaches non-Jews why the world is the way it is today. Because this struggle, which began, which was uh, literally laid out when they were in the womb, they were wrestling in the womb, these two princes who, who, as you see the story unfold as they're growing up, they definitely represent two worldviews. One is all about um, believing completely in the promises of Hashem and living the life according to his instruction. And the other one rejects all of that and says, I'm my own God. I follow my own path. I'm a self-made man. And and it is so much a part. This is something that, that non-Jews, we have to learn to throw off as we, as we mature. Um, emotionally and spiritually, we have to learn to become more like Jacob, we have to we have to become humble first of all, like he has become, and we have to we have to. I mean, I was raised in a totally Western mindset in that we came first in the world, and it's not that way. And in fact, there are historians who conf- confirm. You know, it, by the way, this at the end of this parsha, we see a a. Um, a roll call of the leadership of Esav, of Edom. And that is so such a right place to put that roll call is at the end of this Parsha. Because, because what, is, uh, what does Jacob say to Esav when they meet on the road and he doesn't destroy him? And, and, he's, and they, they have this wonderful reunion. And I, I saw exactly wonderful, but anyway. Well, they have a reunion, and it and it turns out that he he uh, he he's, he doesn't kill him, and they actually at one point uh, supposedly weep, and uh, Esau gets very generous and very oh you know he, he almost becomes obsequious, and then obsequious. <clears throat> excuse me, Jacob says no, you go on before me, and we will continue at our own pace. That is the history of the Jewish and that people. Line, right that there. line is so laden because there's so many different 
meaning levels of meaning to that line. You go on before me in this world, and in I'll this world. and I'll go and I'll take the next world. And also there again, he's talking about the pace of the children and the flocks. Again, yes. he's talking about the children and the future generation. Like just just let me be with the with the future generations. Right. And and what's what's amazing is this answer is the reason I used to read that that uh, whole list of the rulers of Edom. And I used to wonder, what has that got to do with this Torah parsha? It, it's actually been set up by by Yaakov when he says, "Esau, you go before me," because because Adam had kings before Israel had kings and leaders. And there is even a personage mentioned in that roll call. His name is Magdiel, and he is said to be the key. He's the seed of the Roman Empire, and he's later, by the way. There's a great sage of the Middle Ages who says Magdiel is really a person called Diocletian. Really? And Diocletian was a Roman emperor who, who rose up at the end of the Roman Empire, and he's responsible for its surviving in Europe and also for the many tenets of the Roman Empire. And by the way, the reason I get into all this is because of the fact that 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 all the sages agree without question that that Esau represents uh, not only the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire, by the way, is the um, is the beginning of Western civilization. And I want to read you a really quick quote from a very popular historian by the name of Michael Grant. And Michael Grant wrote a book called um, The Founders of the Western World. And this is what he says. Now, keep in mind that all the sages say that Edom represents the Roman Empire. We see that in last week's dream. It was the world empire mm -hmm. that rose up the ladder, but we didn't see them come down, because, meaning it would go stretch into the future of history. This is, what a, this is what a secular historian says about us today, about Western civilization. We ourselves, whether we like it or not, are the heirs of the Greeks and the Romans in a thousand different ways. They are permanently and indestructibly woven into the fabric of our own existence. Amazing. Wow. Doesn't that tell the story of, of who we are today? You got a taste of that. You were raised in, in America, and yet through some divine intervention, and you've told me the story, and it's marvelous. We should talk about it sometime. For all intents and purposes, you should have grown up as a, uh, a wild Jewish kid <laughs> and, and embracing the 60s counterculture, letting your hair grow long and becoming a hippie. You, for, First really, of you all, I let, my, I let my payas and my beard grow long. Second right. of all, I, uh, I'm basically a hippie from the 60s, you know, that's my, that's the long past. Yeah, but you're, and I'm basically a flower child. And I, yeah, yeah, I could have been another Abby Hoffman, Jim. I could have been really? Abby, but instead, <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of water under that bridge, Jim. But what I'm saying is, is this is, this is why this Parsha is so pivotal to all of us because this wrestling match literally has continued through history. If you want to know why the world it never is will end, this is what I was saying. It won't end until right. the vision of Avadia is, is fulfilled. Exactly. And, and it, it's the, the, uh, well, anyway, uh, I just wanted to bring that out and I'm sure it's obvious to a lot of our listeners anyway, because I found that many of them are, are very, uh, very good Torah students. We're getting, we're seeing that from the comments. So Asav backslash Edom is the foundation of, um, Western civilization, Christian Europe and, yes, and, yes. Amer and America as well. Right. Yeah. And, of and course, you know, it's in a, in a purely political, uh, politically motivated, um, move, uh, Constantine adopted Christianity as the state religion. Yes, exactly. And, and it was a, a very specific period in time when that solidified an empire and the Roman Empire in one fell swoop practically became the Holy Roman Empire. Exactly. Yeah. And that continued today. Those ideas flourished. Every, this, by the way, this, this, by the way, this is because this is so intriguing that that is the basis uh, for the, the idea, uh, which is... Um, considered by many to be legend, but I believe it's true, and I know for a fact that it's true, and I have proof that it's true. How do we explain how, how the uh, vessels of the temple that were 
stolen by by Rome, how did they become the property of the Vatican? How, in fact, you know, just yesterday we released mm-hmm. on the on um, the Jerusalem Lights YouTube channel and on our website rabbiruchin.com released a never before seen video of my son, archaeologist Hill Richmond, gave a breathtaking uh, lecture uh, last year in in the states on the menorah, on the history of the concept of the menorah from biblical times to the present. And he talked about the, you know, the shape of the menorah and, and, and just comparing all sorts of amazing archaeological, historical, scientific facts. Mm-hmm. And in this video that's available now to see on our YouTube channel here, um, he actually talks, he actually shows some pretty amazing um, proofs of um, the, the sacred tr- treasures of the temple that were looted from Jerusalem by Rome, how they are in the Vatican to this very day. He proved well, that. Well, we even he see it on it. the gate. The gate. Uh, what's the name of the uh, the uh, Titus's arch? Right. There but it I'm is. Talking, they're carrying. Yeah. That, but but Titus is. But the arch was 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 built in honor of Titus. I'm talking about um, historical proof from much from much later in time, much closer to our time. That was actually um, created by the Vatican in, as memorabilia of these artifacts but i'm saying how did that happen how did how did the the let's say that there was there was loot that was in the treasure troves of of ancient rome how did that become the property of the vatican because it was one seamless transfer of ownership because it was the same people basically yeah yeah, and, and, and it, again, and just rolling them up into like a neat little ball. But there's a lot of historical uh, um, proof here. There's a lot of scholarship. It's a very, very important subject, and it, and I'm not doing it justice at all. We're talking like layman, but there's so much information here that is available. It's a very intriguing concept, and it's a, it's again proof that these these two pivotal figures in in the history of the world, Esau and Yaakov, they are they are twins. So that through history. Esav would would try to project himself as the twin of Jacob, and he would do so in these religions that are man-made religions, by the way, in the fact that, uh, you know, I'm working on a documentary about the Sistine Chapel. The Sistine Chapel's design was based on the the Roman Catholic, the the Vatican's idea of what the temple was supposed to look like. So there they're mimicking the temple. And and then on the top of it all, you have th- this again is is the the in one of the instances where uh, Rome twi- tries to to dominate uh, the the uh, uh, Judaism by taking these 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 uh, objects these holy objects and keeping them and saying, see, we own them, you know. In fact, the, in fact the. The um, the reason that one of the reasons that the the Pope I think it was Sixtus that that had the Sistine Chapel built was to reaffirm the the Church's establishment supremacy, over exactly. supremacy. Some, supremacy over Judaism yeah. and and the Jews. So again, th- this is this is history being played out with this wrestling match again and again. I just want to finish out this this thought that I mentioned. I just want want to close it. What I what I meant by the whole uh, emphasis of Yaakov saying "Katonti," I am small. Uh, the take home that I w- I wanted everyone to appreciate because it's such an amazing thing that he said is that, you know, if uh, and and this is the lesson that I I would like to learn. If such a, such a person like Yaakov, who was so righteous, not only righteous but so supermanish in terms of his incredible prowess, um, the things that he accomplished in this world. He felt undeserving of Hashem's kindness, kindness. Because so, so the point is that all of us need to constantly reflect on the things that we take for granted, and we need to acknowledge Hashem's goodness to us, and and not mistakenly think that everything is coming to us. It's about thanking Hashem at every moment. It always, 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 everything always goes back to that. Just thanking Hashem for being alive and realizing that it's all a gift. Yeah. And you know, when I suddenly called to mind when uh, Jacob uh, finally in his old age meets Pharaoh and, and the Pharaoh looks at him and says, how old are you? 
And he and he his, he tells his age, which is what 114, 117. Anyway, he's in <clears throat> he's well into his hundreds, and and he says, and, and uh, I am such and such age. I think it's 140. I'll have to look it up. I should have looked it up before I even brought this up. And it, a life full of struggle and hardships, and this Torah parsha really points back to that idea of the hardships that he endured, not only, you know, being, being beaten and robbed and, and left for dead and, and finally pulling himself up and, 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 you know, meeting his, his wife marriage. And then he goes through this struggle, this wrestling match, God reaffirms his position as Israel, as the head of a, a nation that will become a nation to the, a priesthood to the world and suddenly, here we go, they're in Shkem. Now, which, I know you want to talk about the rape of Dina, and I know you have a lot to say about that, but I want you to say even more. Before you get to that, Jim, I want to, I want to ask you this. I, I know that this Parsha is very important to you, and I know that the book that you wrote mm-hmm. uh, is, I think you once told me that part or a major part of your motivation in writing that book which I'd like you to tell our listeners about now, uh, was was about the struggle of Yaakov and Esav. Yeah. So can can you summarize kind of the, your whole motivation? I wrote. It was the uh, there were two pivotal events in the in the life of Yaakov, and then there was a pivotal a pivotal event in my life that drew me to write this book because first of all. I wanted to understand. So there are several books that you wrote. So tell everyone the name of it so that they know. Well, the the I've written actually written one book, the Riddle of the Exodus, which is to bring evidence that that shows what I believe is is strong evidence historically and archaeologically, and even now I found even more evidence in the literature of ancient Egypt that references the Exodus, and then with with. Blood Brothers, I wanted to examine why um, why Jacob was put in that position where he had to wrestle to uh, to demonstrate to himself more than anyone that he was, you know, you talked about how he was he was sort of extremely humbled in his heart over all of the blessings. And that was a struggle that he had to deal with. But I wanted to I wanted to find out, first of all, why do the sages say that um that that Edom, that Esau slash Edom is Rome. Is it just a philosophical statement? And I wanted to find out if there if there was a way that historically that was borne out. And so that my book, Blood Brother, is an examination, first of all, starting in Gan Eden with the first two brothers that wrestle. Because if people don't remember the the the, the murder of um Abel. Uh, is it happens at the end of a struggle, a, a literal r- wrestling match, and and the sages tell us that in the wrestling match that um, Ka- that that Abel was winning the wrestling match, he was winning the wrestling match, and Cain begged for mercy and said, "Would you please let me up? I, I you know, I'm I'm done." And in his kindness, Abel says. Okay, I'm sorry. And he gets up. And the moment he gets up, Cain, because it says Cain rose up in the text. The rising up is what happens after after uh, Abel lets him go, and Cain gets up and then grabs either a rock or a plow, and he bludgeons his brother to death. And that is alluded to, by the way, in this wrestling match of the striking of the thigh of Yaakov, in that the weakness. That that I that uh, uh, Abel showed was in being kind to his adversary when his adversary was bent on on murdering him, and this happens all through history. And and it, it's so uh, say to say it, whoever is kind to the cruel will end up being uh, whoever is cruel. whoever is, is kind is merciful to the cruel will end up being cruel to the merciful. Exactly. So anyway, the, the point is that's how the book begins, and when then we and I trace everything up to this point where the wrestling match and what it embodies and how it teaches us that there are so many principles involved in this wrestling match. It is it is the the struggle between chaos and order. Chaos is Esav, order is Yaakov. 
it embodies the the template of what happens throughout history, the struggle between uh, Western thinking and Torah thinking. And it, it also shows us that what it, why it was necessary for for uh, for Yaakov to embody two different traits and but yet reject the materialism of Esav. It shows you, and then what I do is I trace historically the beginning of the Roman Empire, and I even trace it back to the family of Esav. So I even do it geopolitically and historically. But the, the biggest lesson of all for me was, was learning that, that this Parsha applies to every man and woman on the planet in that to become who we are supposed to be, to each of us to become our own, uh, our finest, and, and, and to live at our potential, which, which this is the thing about, this is the, the difference between Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov struggled, one of his struggles was to live fully to the potential that God gave him. Esau continually rejected that potential, and he took the, the path of least resistance and he, he, he. But, but you mean to say that Esav rejected the potential of who he, of he, who he could be. Oh, who, in other, who in he other could words, be. Great, that's yes, why I call yes. Esav a tragic figure, ultimately. Right. Because he exactly. had great potential. That's what Yitzchak saw in him. That's why Yitzchak thought he was deserving wanted of to give, blessings. He, wanted to because, give him the be, yeah. Because he saw in Esav a tremendous potential to elevate the whole world to holiness. But the problem is that Esav was this physicality without borders. He, he, he could not bring Hashem into the picture because he was Esav. He was a made man he was yeah. he wa- he insisted on being self-made and that and 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 the extreme end of that is that you're god yeah exactly he he had set himself up as his because he rejected the invisible god and said well if you want to talk about that yaakov that's fine but i don't believe in that because i can't see touch taste or feel by the way god. this this very much connects to hanukkah which we're going to be observing uh next week uh a week, it's a, a week from a week from thursday night because yeah. because no because hanukkah is uh a, a celebration of our forefathers victory against the decrees of greek wisdom it was called greek wisdom that was that was foisted upon israel by by the invader now now Greek wisdom is associated, you know, in the Western mindset with with art, with beauty, with literature, with sculpture, with all of these beautiful things, like the worship of art, as it were. But the whole idea of of the the what our sages tell us that that this Greek wisdom darkened the eyes of Israel is the expression they right. use that it was darkness is because their whole thing was. They insisted to Israel that you should only believe in what you can prove scientifically and in what you can see. And that's the whole idea with like the beauty of art is like it's all skin deep. It's the only what you can see, that's what's real. And nothing else is real. And of course, everything that Israel believes in is not something that can be seen. Right. I mean, for instance, you know, when you talk about concepts like love, you know, uh, love is, we all know, a very real thing. Belief is a very real thing. But can you measure it? Can you weigh it? The Greeks would say, those things aren't real because we can't. We can't, we can't there's no weight to it. There's no, you can't measure it. You can't, you can't touch it. But it's as real as a chunk of iron. And, and this again, and I would beg to differ slightly because they, this is the, the whole reason the whole uh, Maccabi revolt occurred is because the Jews of Modi'in rejected what the Greeks wanted to impose on them. They, they, they rejected this, this sort, as you say, this, uh, this Hellenistic idea of the world. And by the way, that entire concept of Greek, uh, their worldview, their, their cosmology was absorbed and completely promoted by the Roman empire. We, we know that the Romans were only, quote, elevated by the ideas that they, the, I mean, they even wrote in Greek, for goodness sakes. Latin was used on their, on their buildings and their, their public records and things like that. But everyday speech was, was Greek. So uh, those two are indelibly you know, tied. I don't want to exaggerate uh, run with this too far, but again, America is all about what what is worshiped in America what who are who are the heroes what is the ideal the who wealthy the, the actors it's all the actors it's all about entertainment it's all about feeling good and total distraction and there's no reality in it whatsoever and it's 
Right. And it's all about uh, looking good. It's mm-hmm. all about looking good. And by the way, to, to further nail this, this analogy of Rome and Western thought and all Western countries, including America, sadly, is that, you know, open your eyes, you know, look at Washington, D.C. All of the public buildings in Washington look like Roman buildings. They have columns. They have Corinthian. They, they, have, they, they look like Roman buildings. And it, to further nail the analogy, when uh, in, in the founding days of our nation, the plot of land that was bought and eventually became Capitol Hill. Do you know what the little community there was called where they bought that plot of land? It was called Rome. Really? Yes. Yes. That's a, that's an, another little fundamental part of, of, of hidden history that connects all of this and, and binds it together. So um, do we, uh, it, goodness, we're at 55 minutes already. I and I know you want to talk people. about, about Dina. I, I just want to say before you do. Uh, Only if we have time, Rabbi. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to say that in chapter 33, um, so Yaakov comes um, uh, intact is the translation. He arrives in Shechem, whole, shalem, which our sages tell us that he was healed from his, from his limp. He arrives at the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, upon his arriving from Padanaram, and he encamped before the city. The word is Vayichan et Pnei Ha'ir. So, so the sages have a, a whole teaching on this word, Vayichan, that Yaakov actually was very uh, um, motivated to, uh, on, a, on a civic level, level to do something for the people of Shechem. He, he minted a coin. He... Um, uh, constructed um, uh, bathhouses for the people. He instructed mm-hmm. them in, the, in, the, in proper uh, rules of marriage. In other words, he was interested in like societal societal tikkun. So he had hoped that this that that he, he could have some sort of a of a pact with these people, and that he could he could help to elevate them in their service of Hashem. He had hoped that that would be his contribution, as it were, to living peacefully with these people. And that's not what happened. No. No, the tragedy, one of the great tragedies we find in the Torah, and that is that uh, his daughter Dina uh, is is there in the city, and uh, the prince of the city, Shechem, his father is Chamor, which also means uh, donkey. But it uh, also, but it also means materialism. It also means materialism. materialism. It also means yeah, raw, exactly. raw materialism. Chomer. Raw materialism, and it, he uh, shockingly, uh, Shechem kidnaps Dina. Uh, takes her home, rapes her, uh, and doesn't want to let her go, and then has the audacity to, uh, when he's confronted by by two of her brothers, Shimon and Levi, says, look, you know, I love your sister. I want to marry her. Let, let's all intermarry. Let's, let's make a pact. And so Shimon and Levi deal with him in a crafty fashion, and they basically say, okay, fine, but you've got to do, we have one concession. And that is, is that we don't intermarry with with people who are not uh, circumcised. So circumcise all the men, and then we can make a deal. And so they, so his uh, Shechem is so wrought up in, in excitement that that be, and, and the sages tell us that they really sought a way to just completely uh, um, take in and assimilate Jacob's family, so they would just sort of lose their identity anyway, and. Uh, and they saw what a progressive guy he was in terms of building and 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 this type of thing. And they could they could they saw a lot of a lot of things that they could gain from this association. So of course they wait until the third day. Shimon and Levi wait till the third day, and they wait. Which for we already end. learned from Parshat Vayera when Hashem came it's, to visit Avraham is the most painful day, the most painful day of circumcision. And so they they wait until they are at the third day. They they literally are in pain. Probably a lot of them have have intoxicated themselves to assuage the pain, and that's when Shimon and Levi, by themselves, we understand, attack the city and annihilate the population of Shechem. Now, here's what's really curious about this: is that and they did not do it G- with a satellite or anything. Like no, that. <laughs> no, they didn't. And in fact, they did it with 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 first of all with stealth, and they did it with with uh, which, in a way, is sort of a kind of a satellite analog, if you will. They they set up this plan as as, as good as any the Mossad could set up. They made a deal with them, 
and they come in and they attack the city because they and and by the way under under Torah or Noahide laws they are within their rights because kidnap and rape are both punishable by death in either one of those scenarios so they attack the city and what is surprising is that Yaakov is is upset about it Yaakov says you know what have you done you know you've attacked you you've annihilated a city we're we're going to have to leave because there's no way this, the people in, in the neighboring kingdoms, and usually this is the day when you had city-states, each, each uh, we'd call them mayors, each, each city had a, a king. And uh, what's interesting about that, that, what is so intriguing is that Jacob's own reaction is anger and frustration, you shouldn't have done it. And yet, when he's on his deathbed, and he's on his deathbed in the final Torah Parsha of Breshit of Genesis, he tells Joseph, his son, I will give you one portion above your brothers. I will give you a plot or a place or a portion in Shechem, which I took from the Amorite with my with bow. My, and my, bow. Sword. Right. my bow and my sword, which says, wait a minute, that sounds like he led the attack. What's the answer to this conundrum? And I, the reason I'm bringing this up, because it's, it's if we look again, this shows you the value of the oral tradition. If you look to, to uh, really important sources like Rashi, like uh, Targum Yonatan, um, Ma'am Loez, uh, Sefer Yashar, Ma'am Loez itself, known as, which was a, what, a 17th century commentary, right, on, on the, the Torah Parsha, it goes on for pages and says that seven years after the, the annihilation of Shechem, Yaakov and his family move back to Shechem, hoping that the dust is settled, everybody will forget it. Well, they haven't. And so what happens is, is a, a, an attack by the neighboring cities against the family of Yaakov. The entire family, these surrounding nations, attack Israel and his family. And and they battle for days, and there and it describes in pages of the heroics of the sons of Israel, of the sons of Jacob, and how Naphtali leapt on a wall from a standing start, and how uh, Yehuda Judah would would scream so loud that men would collapse and pass out from the scream, and it goes on and on, and and in this instance, it tells us that Yaakov has his sword, has his bow. And he leads his sons in battle this time. But that is nowhere to be found in the text of the Torah, except it's alluded to in the deathbed promise where he says, which I took with my sword and my bow. And here's, here's, the, here's the, the punchline, Rabbi. Talk about the uh, experiences of the fathers being a template for the children. Guess how many days that battle lasted? Six. Wow. It was a six-day war. And in our six-day war today, in, in our time, Israel was attacked by surrounding nations in a, in, in a uh, what, what, what seemed like an unprompted attack, yet they all found reasons to do it. And it lasted six days. In this battle that's spoken of by in the oral tradition, this battle lasted six days. And, and Yaakov led that battle. Amazing. Amazing scholarship, Jim. I appreciate it so much. Believe it or not, we are actually out of time. We went by yes, very we quickly. Um, I would like to reissue my, my standing invitation to all our listeners to join our Zoom classes. Just drop me an email at rabbi at rabbirichman.com for the Zoom ID and login information. Also, if you'd like links to recordings of past Zoom classes, we're about to start a new subject in our ongoing series of the lives of the forefathers on Sunday, December 6th, we are going to be starting a class about the secrets of Joseph's coat. Very, very elusive topic, very dear to my heart. I'm really looking forward to that. Before, and, before um, you, before you close completely, I was, I, I am a, would be a miss if I didn't finish answering your question and very quickly. Now, the other thing that I learned from, from researching this book and this wrestling match, because because Yaakov says, I've seen, he survives the wrestling match, and he says, I have seen the face of God, and I've lived. And that is a lesson, that was a, a huge revelation for me, 
that 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 struggles that I was having in my life, they come from God. And once we realize that all of our troubles and our gifts all come from Hashem and that it's part of our struggle as human beings, that God makes us better persons by sending us experiences that cause us to wrestle with within ourselves and overcome them is what makes us better souls. Exactly. And that's it's, the real it's all, revelation. It's not, he's not out to get us. It's everything he sends no. our way is to help us become better people. Amen. And that's the Amen. living Torah. That is the yeah. living Torah right there. And that is the, the profound experience of being connected to Hashem and finding our lives in, in the Torah as we're doing this week. Amen. Thank you so much, Jim. Mary, all of our listeners, you, everyone, have a wonderful, safe, blessed, healthy week. Amen.